Our God is good. Amen? Amen. He is holy. He is righteous. He is pure and merciful. He is gracious and He is kind. And He has given us the incredible privilege of gathering His brothers and sisters in Christ to worship His holy name. What we're doing here is not a have to. It's not an obligation. It's not a twist our arms and make us show up. It's a get to. When you're rightly related to Him and you're walking with Him and you're, you're filled with His Spirit, this is a get to. It's not a have to. I'm so excited you're here. Now please lean in this morning. Don't sit back waiting for me to entertain you. Uh, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not an orator. I'm not eloquent enough to entertain you. But if you'll lean in and work with me, God will speak to you through his word. And it will be powerful. And you will be blessed. If you have scripture, I want you to turn to the 15th chapter of the book of Luke. I have discovered about myself uh, that I tend to go to Isaiah 6 and Luke 15 so very often. It just resonates with me. It speaks to me. The writer Luke begins his gospel account, the 15th chapter uh, these words, he says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain, and gripe, criticize, and whine that he was associating with such sinful people. I mean, of all things, he was even eating with them. Did you hear what Luke is saying? Luke begins this incredible chapter. To me, it's just an incredible chapter. He begins his incredible chapter with tax collectors and other notorious sinners. See, the, the, these weren't your good, church-going, socially acceptable, religiously active sinners. No, these were the notorious sinners. And, and, and being notorious in your sin is not enough. There's an extra category, tax collectors. Tax collectors are so bad, they got a category all to themselves. And yet these worst of sinners were attracted to Jesus. And not only were they attracted to Jesus, they were welcomed by Jesus. What if the worst sinner in Hartzell walked in the building right now? Who would get up and shake their hand and hug their neck? Jesus would. The self-righteous religious people couldn't for the life of them understand why Jesus was so comfortable hanging out with disreputable sinners. 
And see, their problem was they did not understand the heart of God. They thought they did. They thought they had God all figured out. They thought they had God in a box and that God was all about rules and regulations and religious protocol and procedures around the temple and that God didn't care about people at all. He just cared about these rules and they were so, so, so very wrong. And so to help them understand the heart of God, Jesus gathers everyone together and begins to tell them stories. He takes those who have great confidence in their own righteousness and he tells them three stories. And you've got to understand something. It blew their minds. In the first story, Jesus talks about a missing lamb. He says, he says basically, this farmer had a hundred sheep. And one of them wandered off and got lost. Now the farmer still had 99 sheep. And having 99 sheep is pretty good. You got a pretty good uh, flock there if you got 99 sheep. But this one sheep was so uh, important. He was so valuable. He, he meant so much to the farmer that the farmer left the 99 sheep and went out and searched and hunted and found the one. And when he found the one, he picked it up joyfully, put it on his shoulders and carried it home. Get the picture. He didn't take his stick and beat it and drive it home. Home. He lovingly picked it up and put it on his shoulders and he carried it home. And when he got home, he called his neighbors. He called his friends. He called the guy down the street he didn't even like and said, come celebrate with me. I have lost a sheep, but I found it. And so we need to rejoice that the lost sheep is now home. Do you understand? You and I, were the lost sheep. And God came and found us. You didn't go looking for God. God went looking for you. And when he found you, he put you on his shoulders and he carried you home. And the angels in heaven rejoiced and threw a party. And the Pharisees are freaking out. All right, you'll understand it. They're freaking out of. And that wasn't enough, so Jesus tells a second story. And this time he tells a story about a lady who lost a coin. Now, coins in those days were a big deal because they were handmade. There's no mint in Baltimore or, wherever, or Philadelphia or Denver or wherever those places are. There's no mint that's just churning out hundreds of thousands of coins every day. They were handmade, and so they were valuable. You didn't lose them. But this lady lost a coin. So what did she do? She turned her house upside down. She did spring cleaning in the fall so she could find this coin. And when she found it, she called her friends and she called her neighbors and said, said come party with me because what was lost has now been found. And you and I were the coin. And God searched for us. He turned eternity upside down. He turned heaven inside out so that he could come and he could find us. And when he found us, he and the angels gathered around his throne and threw a party. Do you understand? Jesus is telling us our God, I know this sounds sacrilegious, but get over it. Our God is a party animal because of you. But they still didn't get it. So Jesus told a third story. And now I'm going to have some help. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off to a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. 
after he had spent everything, a severe famine came to that whole country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Who sent him to his, feed, his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to eat? Yet here I am, starving to death. I will set out and say to my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion. He ran to him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older brother was out in the fields. When he drew near the house, he heard dancing and singing. He called to one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. But the father went out and pleaded with him, and the son answered him. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a small goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you were always with me. And everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So you have three stories, a missing sheep, a missing coin, and a missing son. Three stories, one message, because redundancy reinforces the message that Christ is trying to communicate. Our God is a God who is searching for lost things, and he's not really searching for lost things. He is searching with all his heart for lost people, and when he finds them, he celebrates. And he and the supernatural angels surrounding his throne throw a party. Because what was lost has been found. See, the Father is longing to embrace us and to kiss us, to welcome us into the family, to address us in the royal robes of the righteousness of Christ, to put rings on our fingers, shoes On her feet. His arm around our shoulders. Seat us at his banquet table. He longs for us to come home. So what I want to do this morning is walk you back through this passage. Uh, our students have, have quoted to us. And just make a few points that the scripture really speaks for itself. Jesus doesn't need my help. So I'll walk you through it. I'll make a few comments. Dinner's ready, so I won't keep this too long. But start with me in verse 11. And I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. I know that is a little different. I, don't, I rarely ever preach from this, but I just like the way it communicates. 
So walk with me as we go through this and unpack it. Starting in verse 11, it says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told the Pharisees and the religious teachers of the law a sto- the story. A man had two sons. And the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. And the father agreed to divide his wealth among his two sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and he moved to a distant land and there he wasted all the money his father had given him in wild living, sinful living, debauchery at its best. Verse 14 says, and about this time his money ran out. And when his money ran out, as you would know, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He had never known hunger. His daddy had always taken care of him. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him out and and the man sent him into the fields to feed pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one would give him anything. So let's think about that. This young man uh, goes to his dad and says, Dad, I'm tired of living in your house. I'm tired of living by your rules. I'm chafing under all these restrictions. I I, I don't like these boundaries. I want to go and live as I want to. And and the father said, fine, son, I'm not going to keep you here. And the young man didn't waste any time. As soon as he got his money, he was gone. As he had bought into the lie the enemy tells us that says, boundaries are designed to stifle you. No, they're not. Boundaries are designed to protect you. You know what? God didn't give us one single rule to keep us from anything that's good. He gave us every rule he gave us for our benefit to protect us from the things that are bad. You know, can you believe it? When my boys were growing up, I told them that they could not gargle Clorox. Sorry, guys, you just can't do that. It's a bad idea. No gargling the Clorox, you know? Man, they just, Dad, come on. The kids down the street are doing it. Why can't we do it? You know, we, we treat God the same way. And then we wonder why our lives are so messed up. He bought into the lie that that our actions have no consequences. Listen, every action you have has a result, good or bad. Good or bad. Everything you do has a consequence, good or bad. There's never anything you're going to do that doesn't have a consequence. And see, here's the problem. We, We do what God tells us not to do and we suffer the negative consequences. And then we blame God for letting it happen. That just blows my mind that we blame God for the things that happen to us when we do the things he tells us not to do. I grew up with a motorcycle. And we lived out. And my parents' one rule is my motorcycle was not allowed to touch pavement. I could drive all day and go anywhere I wanted as long as I was on dirt. Well, one day it was getting late and I needed to get home and the road was much shorter than the trail. So I took my motorcycle, I was all of 10 years old, and I hit the pavement. And just about the time I got that little Honda 70 up as fast as it would go, which was about 40 miles an hour, this big dog decided to bite my front tire. Well, he missed the front tire, but he hit the back one. And when he hit the back one, he threw the the motorcycle sideways. And I went right over the handlebars and slid down the pavement until there wasn't much of me left. I didn't blame my parents. I was the idiot that drove the motorcycle on the pavement against against their rules. 
But man, we, we blame God every time we suffer the consequence when we've done something he's told us not to do. It's just amazing to me. But this young man, he bought, he bought into the lie. And a lie is a lie no matter how good it sounds or how convincing the liar. And he ran out of money. When he ran out of money, his friends ran off. And he found himself alone. And he found himself in great need. And in desperation, he hired himself out. And the only job this Jewish boy could find was to serve a Gentile pig farmer. Now, I'm telling you what, the Pharisees right now are throwing up and the Sadducees are passing out. And they're looking like at Jesus and if they had had some kind of stun gun, they would have shot him. Because how dare you talk about a good Jewish boy going out to feed Gentile pigs? It's the most reprehensible illustration Christ could have offered them. And he's talking about the dirtiest situation we can. You ever, you ever, anybody, don't. You ever been around a pig farm? I love bacon. I am so grateful for pig farmers. But there's nothing in the world that smells worse than a pig farm. I am so grateful we got pig farmers. But man, I don't want to be one. Verse 17 reads, and when he finally came to his senses, when he came to his senses, when he regained his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants that work for my dad have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer to be worthy of being called your son. Please just take me on as a hired servant. What a great act of repentance. You know, the, two, the New Testament word for, for sin means to miss the mark. It means there's a standard out there and you've missed it. You've missed the target. You missed the goal. You missed the mark. This young man missed the mark. And when he finally hit bottom, he came to his senses and realized that he was far from the standard his father had set. And because he had, he had not shot for the right standard, he had shot for the wrong standard. And he'd fallen so far short of the right standard. And he was now suffering from it. He realized what a great tragedy it was. What an error it was he came to his senses and when he woke up and saw things for how they really were he realized that even the servants back at the house had it better than what he was living in right now and he decided to get over himself repent of his sins go home to his father fall before him apologize and beg just to work for his daddy and verse 20 reads so he returned home to his father and while he was still a long way off his father saw him coming. Now, every Pharisee sitting there got to that point and said, good, he got the whip, he got the chair, he got the, he got the bully in his, in his crew, and they're going to go out and beat this young man senseless. Because that's what the Pharisees were expecting to happen. This dad has been mistreated, he's been abused, his money's been wasted. This young man went off and lived in riotous, uh, sinful living. He, he has dishonored his dad's name. He deserves retribution, so the father's now going to take it out of his hide. We have people today that think that God's that way. He's not anything like that. Jesus says, while the young man was still ways off, the father saw him coming. And he was not filled with anger and wrath and animosity and indignation. Jesus says he was filled with love and compassion. 
And then he did something that totally freaked the audience out again. Jesus describes the dad. He says, he ran to his son. He embraced his son. He kissed his son. The son said to the father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the dad cuts him off. And Jesus here is painting this picture of God and it's nothing like the Pharisees or the teachers of the religious law would have expected. And they are beside themselves. This boy has abandoned his dad, taken his money and broken his heart. But the father has chosen not to reject the son, forsake the son, abandon the son. There's going to be no retribution. The son's not going to have to earn his way back in. The father is going to offer him grace and mercy and receive him back. Jesus describes this father in the story as being loving and compassionate. In so doing, he paints God as being loving and compassionate. So wrap your head around this. The transcendent, holy, omnipotent creator of the universe who spoke and everything we see came into existence is a God filled with love and mercy and grace and compassion. We read about his wrath in the New Testament. But you know the reason he has wrath is because he hates sin. And the reason he hates sin is because sin hurts his children. And he loves his children. He has great mercy for his children. He has great grace for his children. He only hates sin because it's detrimental to his kids. Jesus drives this point deeper. The father, Jesus says the father ran. Now you need to understand culturally, no respectable Jewish man would ever run. It was so undignified. It was so culturally unacceptable. It was completely taboo because they wore those long robes. And for a Jewish man to run, he would reach between his legs, grab the back of his robe, pull it up and tuck it in his belt. And you would see the bottom of his white bony legs. And no Jewish man who had any self-respect was ever going to allow anybody to see his white, hairy, bony legs. And it's not only bad that Jesus is describing a Jewish man in this picture, but what Jesus is doing is describing God in this picture. That God is not worried about what people think about him. God is worried about his kids coming home. And that is such an incredible point. This boy who spent his father's hard-earned money on sinful living, who abandoned his home and rejected the father's way of life, was lovingly embraced. The father ran to him and lovingly embraced him. And then Jesus goes even further. He kissed him. Now listen, in those days, uh, water was incredibly, incredibly, incredibly scarce. And so they didn't bathe. They washed their hands, was it. They ceremonially would wash their hands, and basically that was it, because water was too hard to come by. You didn't waste it cleaning your body. You washed your hands and you drank it, but you didn't wash. So can you imagine how that boy smelled? And the father ran to him and threw his arms around him and hugged him and kissed him because it didn't matter 
how he looked to the Father. And it didn't matter how he smelled to the Father. All that mattered to the Father was the boy had come home. My mother's one of five kids. She's the oldest. The next to the youngest, his name's Jimmy. And he was drafted into the war in Vietnam. I was a little kid. I just knew he'd, he'd gone somewhere. I didn't really understand it. But I remember the day he came home. It was very secretive. He called my mother and told her, and she picked him up at the Huntsville Airport and drove him out Highway 72 into the little town of Gurley and over to Church Street and, and knocked on the door. And my grandmother opened the door. I was standing there. And as you can imagine, this little short, squatty-bodied woman leapt like Michael Jordan, sailed through the air and hit my uncle in the chest, wrapped her arms around his neck and would not let him go. And as a little kid, I couldn't understand the tears that were flowing. Why is she crying? Why is Mimal crying? I'm looking at my mom and my younger uncle. Why is Mimal crying? Because she's so happy. I didn't associate tears with happiness. What do you mean she's happy? She's crying. That means she's sad. No, she's crying tears of joy. This father cried tears of joy because his son had come home. He didn't care how he looked. He didn't care what he smelled like. He didn't care where he'd been. He didn't even care what he'd been doing. All that mattered to the father was the son had come home. Verse 22, the father said to the servants, quick, on delay, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on the boy. Get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we have been saving for a special occasion. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead. He has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Let the party begin. I just love that. You know, the Pharisees are out cold on the ground. This story is just beyond their ability to comprehend. They just, they don't like Jesus and they don't like this story. But this father has his servants bring out the festive clothing. They put a ring on his finger. It's a signet ring. It's a family heirloom. It says, this is my son. He's not a servant. He's not a hired hand. He is my son. The wearer of the ring has a special status in my house. And they, they crank up the barbecue. They hire a band. They call the neighbors. It's time to celebrate. There's going to be a party because the boy was lost, but he's been found. He was gone, but now he's home. He was away, but he's returned. He says he was dead, but now he's alive. Verse 25, Jesus, Jesus has stuck the knife in. Now he turns it. Meanwhile... The older boy, representative of the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law who are listening to this story, was out in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard the music and the dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what is going on? And the servant said, your brother is back, and your father has killed the fatted calf. It was his fatted calf. 
We are celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother got angry. I wonder how often in our self-righteous anger we bring tears to our Father's eyes. The older brother was angry and he wouldn't go in, so the father came out and pleaded with him and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've been so good, I've been so righteous, I've been so holy, I've done everything right, I have slaved for you. I've never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to. And all this time you never gave me one of a, a young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when the son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes... You celebrate. What's wrong with you? See, this is, this is, this is the ugly voice of self-righteous religion. This is the voice of those who claim to speak for God but have no understanding of who God is. They have no understanding of the grace of God and the mercy of God. They have no understanding of the heart of God who's willing to die in our place, pay our debt, redeem us, invite us back into the family, adopt us back into the family, give us a place in the house, and even credit us with his righteousness. See, this is the voice of those who are so confident in their own righteousness, they, in, deep down, subconsciously, they don't even think they need forgiving. And because they don't think they need forgiving, they set themselves up at the standard, and because they're the standard and they've done so good, nobody else deserves forgiveness. Man, did Jesus have a hard, hard time with those folks. In verse 31, his father said to him, look, my dear son, you've always been with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead. He's come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. See, the brother was dead. He wasn't just bad. He wasn't just gone. He wasn't just wrong. That was bad enough, but that really wasn't the case. He wasn't any of those things. He was much more. He was dead. He was spiritually dead. He was D-E-A-D. He was spiritually dead. He was separated from God. See, salvation does not make a bad person good. You need to hear this. Salvation does not make a bad person good. Salvation makes a dead person alive. There are a lot of saved people in this room, but I got news for you. There's not a person in this room who's good. There are people in this room who are redeemed. And there are people in this room that have been declared righteousness because we've been credited with the righteousness of Christ. But there's not a person in this room who is good because like Paul, we talk about, he talks about in, in Romans 7, the good we don't want to do, the good we want to do, we can't find a way to do. And the sin we don't want to do, we keep finding a way to do it. As Paul said to Timothy, I am the chief among sinners. We're all in that same boat. We all still live in these bodies of death. We all still struggle with selfishness and self-centeredness. Even when we do the right thing, our motives and attitudes are wrong. They're there's not a good person in this room. But there are redeemed people who have been adopted 
into God's family and are received and hugged and kissed and welcomed. We were dead, but now we're alive. The Apostle Paul understands this so clearly. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wrote this in Ephesians 2. Once, he's talking to the church at Ephesus, which I think was Paul's favorite church. Maybe he didn't have favorites, but it seems like it when you read it. Paul says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. See, when you were disobedient and you were in a sinful state of life, you weren't bad, you weren't bad, well, you were, but it was so much more than that. You weren't just bad, you were dead. Salvation does not make bad people good. It's so much more than that. Salvation makes dead people alive. If you have come to Christ and you have been born again and you have been redeemed by the Son and you've been placed in Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in you, it's so much more than just being good. Being good is important, but it's so much more than just being good. You've now been born again. You have now been put into a relationship that reestablishes a connection with the Father. He knows you and he loves you and he's got you in the palm of his hand he's written you his name on the palm and he has put his holy spirit inside of you you have been sealed until the day of redemption and he's at work in you to complete the work he's going to finish someday to make you perfectly like jesus christ you were dead but now you're alive and it is good Paul keeps going in Ephesians 2, but God who is so rich in mercy, he is so rich in mercy. He's not a pauper in mercy. He is rich in mercy and he's not chintzy with his mercy. He is extravagant with his mercy. The God who is so rich in mercy and has loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. Do you understand? I can't I don't understand this. I can't wrap my head around this. I've asked leading theologians and seminaries and other places to explain this to me. But here's what, here's the truth, even though I don't understand how God did it. But in God's foreknowledge, when Jesus hung on the cross, God put every person that would ever be born again into Christ. And when Jesus' body went into the tomb, we all went with him. And when Jesus come up out of the tomb to new life, it's resurrected life, in God's mind, in God's economy, we came with him. When Christ came back to life, we came with him. We have been given new life. And that's what takes us into heaven. Verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for any of it. You don't deserve any credit for anything you've ever done. There's no scoreboard in heaven except Jesus. And you understand, he's the standard you would have never met, but he's also the score you get credit for. God saved you by his grace. And you can't take credit for it. It is a gift. It is a gift. It is God's gift. Oh, but preacher, I've been a Christian for you, and I've read the Bible, and oh, yeah, 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 throw up. Just, just make me throw up. God saved you by his grace. 
You can't take credit for it. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. And we have no room to boast about anything we have done. And see, here's the great point of that truth is no matter what we've done or how far we've gone or how long we've been there or or what we've involved ourselves in, the door is open and, and we can come home. My parents divorced about the time I was born. My, my parents were married right out of high school. And then my dad was drafted in the army. And this is during the peacekeeping time of Korea in the, in the late 50s, early 60s. <laughs> Back with Fred Flintstone in the Stone Age. And when you went to Korea, there was nothing for the soldiers to do. So they sat around and played cards and drank beer. And so when my dad got back from Korea, he had a severe drinking problem. And for the next 40 years, he just about drank himself to death. I don't remember seeing my dad sober until the day I graduated from college. I didn't see him very often. My mother remarried when I was nine, and I was, I was very blessed. I have a wonderful stepfather who stepped in and did all the things a dad is supposed to do. But I really don't remember seeing my birth father sober until the day I graduated from college. But about 20 years ago, he's in his early 60s, my great uncle who pastored a little church out in Maysville, uh, uh, Alabama, asked me to come preach a revival. So I go in on a Sunday morning and preach a very similar message and give the invitation and my dad's sitting near the back and he gets up and he comes down the aisle and the cynic in me, just, just the cynic in me, sees my dad coming down the aisle and I'm thinking, oh, don't do this. This is not going to make up for all the years of you not being there and all the years of you staying drunk and all the years that I missed out on stuff that most kids got to do with their dad. Don't do this now because this is not going to make up for all those times. But my dad came and my uncle greeted him and he, my, my dad said, I, I need to get saved. And they, they knelt and, and they prayed and, and, and we got my dad a Bible and, and got him some, some spiritual material and, and began to disciple him. And he doesn't miss church. He threw his cigarettes away. He poured his alcohol out. He never went back. It didn't matter how long he had been gone. It didn't matter how far he had been gone. And it didn't matter the repercussions of him being gone. He was welcomed and received by God the Father when he was willing to repent of his sins and come home. There is nobody too bad. There is nobody too far. I don't care what sin they have committed. God's grace is bigger. I got news for you. One drop of the blood of Christ can cover every sin of every person that's ever been born. Your sin will never outsend the grace of God. If you think that, you have way too high opinion of yourself and way too low opinion of Christ. No matter what you've done, you know, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how long you've been gone, 
you can come home. The Father is longing for you to come home. The Father is ready to welcome you home. He is ready to, listen, you take the first step. And God will run to meet you. You take the first step. Now, you've got to take the first step. He, he didn't keep you home, and he's not going to make you come home. But if you're willing to take the first step, he will run you over. He will truck you like a linebacker on a football field. He is so ready to get to you. I was saved as a senior in high school. Easter Sunday morning, 1981. I'm sitting very back row. I'm there for all the wrong reasons. I wasn't there to hear a message. I wasn't there to worship Jesus. I, I, I was there for all the wrong reasons. I was far from God. I was happy being far from God. I, I was fine in my life being far from God. I didn't have any issues in my life. I, I was good. But a man named Jess Henley got up and preached that morning and it was like me and God were in a room alone and he was speaking directly to me. And they gave the invitation and they sang just as I am. That song goes on forever. And I stood there and I gripped the pew as hard as I could and I made it through the first stanza. God is all over me. Conviction is all over me. There's tears rolling down my, my 17-year-old face, and I'm hating that, and I'm gripping the pew as hard as I can, and we get through the second stanza. And I, keep, I started praying. God, make them quit. God, make them quit. God, make them quit. And God was going, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. We made it to the sixth stanza. And just because my hands were hurting so bad, I finally had to let go. And I literally took one step into the aisle. And I'm convinced when I, t when I took that one step, God met me. Now, I walked the aisle. I took the pastor by the hand. I told him I needed to be saved. He handed me off to a counselor, a guy named Bob Orwig. And Bob took me to a side room, and we sat in basically a mop closet. And he walked me through the Roman road, and he explained to me the plan of salvation. And I got on my knees, and I, repented, I verbally repented of my sins and asked Christ to forgive me and to come into my heart and be my Savior. But I am convinced that I was saved the minute I stepped in the aisle. And that truth is still available to you today. The Father is waiting. And he is watching. And he is longing. He's got his robe hiked up in his belt. He's in the starter stance. The servants are close by. They've already got the robe in their hands and the ring in their palm. The calf has been lassoed. The band has been called. The party is ready to be initiated. All you got to do is take the first step.
Everything has been done for you. Jesus has paid for your sins. Your debt has been covered. Forgiveness is available. Salvation is offered freely. The gift is wrapped. It's being held out to you, but you have to take the first step. You have to step out and accept the gift of salvation. No one can do it for you, and it will not be forced upon you.